नमस्ते नमस्कारम वेलकम टू दिस वीक्स खूनी शॉटी दिस इज अदिति कमिंग टू यू ऑल द वे फ्रॉम लखनऊ एंड टुडे आई विल टेल यू द स्टोरी ऑफ द बियर मैन मर्डर्स या यू हर्ड दैट राइट बियर मैन मर्डर्स बट बिफोर आई बिगिन दिस शॉटी आई हैव अ रिक्वेस्ट वी हैव गॉटन सच अ वार्म रिसेप्शन फ्रॉम ऑल यू फील वी हैव गॉटन सच अ वार्म रिस्पॉन्स टू द पॉडकास्ट सो फार Please take a minute of your time, and if you have an Apple device, please leave us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts. Also, subscribe to us wherever else you listen, so you'll know exactly when we upload a new episode. None of this will take very long, but it will help us out immensely. So please, 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 pretty please, I'm asking nicely. Do this for us. Thank you. All right, moving on to the story. Uh, okay, if you're like anything like Sneha and I. you have at least once googled serial killers from india now there are a lot of such listicles floating around on the internet and almost all of these lists have this extremely intriguing entry called the beer man at least i was intrigued according to legend once upon a time south mumbai was terrorized by a menacing serial killer during his spree around 6 to 7 people died and the killer left a beer can next to the bodies that was a signature and that's how people knew that there was a beer loving serial killer on the loose in the streets of mumbai okay now this is definitely a cool legend i mean in the sense of appreciating a good true crime mystery that is but if you dig deeper into the story you realize very quickly that this is more of an urban legend than a real murder mystery but like a lot of urban legends out there the beer man myth is also based on certain true events and these true events are no less intriguing and no less tragic than the legend itself so without further ado let's dive into the story of the beer man between 2006 and 2007 south mumbai was plagued by a series of deaths the death spree began with the murder of a taxi driver in october 2006 His lifeless remains were found on a foot overbridge close to the Marine Lines railway station. Autopsy revealed that he had been beaten to death. Now at that time there was some vague interest in his case. The police did some perfunctory investigation, but largely the murder remained unnoticed and Mumbai like it always does moved on. But on 14th December 2006 the body of a homeless man was found near Churchgate railway station. If you're familiar with Mumbai's local train route you would know that Churchgate is just the next stop after marine lines. So now two murders have taken place in close proximity of each other and now the otherwise nonchalant police had to think of the possibility of a serial killer on the prowl in South Mumbai. Over the next 3 months five more people were brutally killed by this supposed serial killer and this is what the newspaper reports from that time have to say first of all it seems that the method of killing was uniform in all the seven murders the killer had left a beer can next to the victims and some of the victims were found with their trousers removed from around their waists this meant or at least the police thought that this meant that the killer was probably homosexual maybe he was even fond of drinking since beer cans were found near the victims dead bodies and he was operating in the same south mumbai radius between marine line and churchgate since the media pressure was building up 
police knew that they had to find the killer soon enough. And they caught their lucky break with the last victim. This last victim was found near the Metro Cinema in South Mumbai. As the police were investigating this crime scene, their sniffer dogs picked up the scent of a grey shirt nearby. The shirt had blood stains on it and it seemed like a solid lead. The police questioned the locals about it and they all pointed to the and they all said that the shirt belonged to a man called Ravindra Kantrole. Now, Ravinder seemed like a good fit. He already had a criminal record. He had been arrested three times before this. But we don't know what these charges were. I mean, the, we don't know whether these charges were for violent crimes or petty ones like theft and all. Another reason why Ravinder seems like a promising suspect was his association with the Dashrat Rahane gang. Okay, so Dashrat Rahane deserves a whole series of episodes just for himself and we might cover him sometime in the future. But for the sake of this shorty, let's just say that he was a dreaded gangster in Mumbai and he was killed sometime in 1990. Ravinder had been a member of this gang uh, in his teenage years. In this gang, he was given the duty of Hafta Vasuli. So basically, Hafta Vasuli is extortion. You're assigned to an area, you go to the shops and businesses in that area, you tell them that you will provide them protection, and in return, they have to give you money to stay away. Ravinder's whole life story is covered in an open magazine article written by journalist Lindu Bhutia. We will link it in our show notes. It's very well written, and you guys should all take the time to read it. But... Here's the story in brief. Ravinder grew up very poor in Mumbai. His father was a gambler and it seemed like by the time he was in his early teens, he was already living the life of a vagrant. Living off the streets and he was, for all practical purposes, abandoned by his parents. By his own admission, Ravinder spent a lot of time growing up in the Azadnagar police station in Mumbai and he was hauled up all the time for one thing or another. Eventually, he joined the Dashrat Rahane gang and as he grew up, he also started frequenting brothels in Mumbai. On one such visit, he fell in love with a prostitute called Anjali. He paid a lot of money to free her from the brothel, married her and started a new life with her. During his final jail stint, he met a devout Muslim man and under his influence, decided to reform himself and embrace Islam. He emerged from jail, a new man with a new name. His new name was Abdul Rahim. And he started earning an honest living. He was doing odd jobs. Sometimes he would sell vada pav from street carts. Eventually, he and Anjali had a daughter who they both loved very much by all accounts. In fact, he even became a police informer on certain cases. And he claimed that he has helped the police nab killers, smugglers, counterfeiters, kidnappers, entire gamut of all kinds of criminals. In fact, Controle told reporter Gajanan Khemkarkar that every time a new deputy commissioner of police took charge, he used to be summoned to the station and the police would ask him for his help. He says that he has never been properly compensated for his role in helping the police. So... All this to say that at the time of his arrest, he was definitely a well-known figure to the police. Now, before he was arrested, a female witness had come to the police voluntarily with her husband and she claimed to have seen the killer on January 11th, 2007 in the Marine Lines area, which was basically the hotspot for these murders. But her statement is 
kind of weird. I mean, she said that she saw a man in his 30s wearing black leather shoes, black trousers and pinstripe white shirt. He had a stubble and curly hair. The witness saw a large knife in his pocket and she claims that he had an almost hypnotic stare. And when I say that this testimony is weird, it's because the witness doesn't actually see this man doing anything. He's just standing on a footpath in marine lines. And yes, the knife does make him seem menacing and suspicious. She claims that she was scared of him, but then she doesn't mention being attacked or threatened by him in any way. I don't know if there is any more to the story. If it is, then it's not been reported. She says that she didn't realize that he could have been a killer until she saw the news the next day about another man who had been found dead in the same area where she saw this man. So then she decided to come forward to the police. Now, I've only found one sketch of the suspected killer so far, and it doesn't match Ravinder's description, and it also doesn't match the description given by this female witness. Remember, she says that this guy had a stubble and curly hair, but the man in the sketch does not have either of those things. You can check out the sketch on our Insta page. We'll put it up. So by this time, at least going by police reports, the police had concluded that the killer was either in his 20s or 30s. He was definitely strong because he could overpower his victims and he was probably gay because victims were male and they'd all been sexually assaulted. This is the police's version so far. So when Ravinder was caught, the police confidently declared that they had their man. They claimed that he had confessed and the case against him was airtight. But the truth is that the so-called confession was the result of a narco-analysis test. Now, frequent listeners of the podcast have heard us mention this test multiple times on Khuni, most recently in connection with the Nithari Killings episode. I think a lot of people assume that a narco-analysis is some sort of surefire way of getting a criminal to admit to the truth. But the reality is quite different. Basically, here's what happens in a narco-test. The accused is given some sort of barbiturate, like sodium thiopentol, and it gets the person to shed some of their inhibition. The theory is that it is easier to tell the truth than to lie, so if the person is unable to control brain function like they normally do, they have no option but to tell the truth. But this doesn't really happen. First of all, effective dosage depends on a lot of factors like weight or a person's tolerance to drugs. So if a low dose is given to a person, they can still lie. And also they can give statements that they believe to be true, but are in fact false. There have been many instances where people have lied even under the influence of this so-called truth serum. It's happened. The first time a narco analysis was used in India during an investigation was for the Godhra riots in 2002. The problem was that between 2002 and 2010, this whole brain mapping, narco-analysis, polygraph test, it was kind of like the wild, wild west of criminal investigations. There weren't any real rules regarding the use of these techniques. In 2010, the Supreme Court finally laid down the guidelines. For those who are interested in criminal justice and law in India and people who are budding lawyers, please read the Supreme Court's judgment in Selvi versus State of Karnataka. According to this judgment, in the Indian legal system, no one can be forced to incriminate themselves in a crime. This is every citizen's constitutional right. So legally, no one can be forced to take a narco test and refusal to take a narco test cannot create a presumption in favor of culpability. 
basically if you're being accused of a crime and the police tell you to take a narco test first of all you can say no secondly the police cannot tell you hey if you're really innocent why don't you take the test what are you scared of saying blah 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 that cannot happen not taking a narco test does not automatically mean that you are a criminal and thirdly and most importantly if you have decided to take a test at all because you feel okay maybe this will take the police off my back and i've done nothing wrong so what do i have to hide even then nothing you say during the test is admissible in court as evidence it doesn't matter what you've said things said by people during narco tests can only be used as investigative tools by the police which means that they can use the stuff you're saying to carry out further investigation and if during this further investigation the police are able to find strong substantial evidence linking you to the crime then that evidence can be given in court and used against you but not the stuff you've actually said during your narco test the legal reasoning behind this entire thing is that if you're giving a confession it has to be free and voluntary so if you have submitted yourself to a narco test you're under the influence of drugs your confession is not free and hence it is not admissible in court that's the legal reasoning okay i know i went off on a little tangent here but i thought it was important to talk about it not just to better understand this episode but crimes in the future as well with regards to this episode with regards to control a it seems like the strongest evidence the police had against him was a so called confession during this narco test now at this time the supreme court judgment on narco evidence had not come out during the time of his trial but we can say that this confession was extremely dubious i think the most interesting part of the confession was that apparently after killing ravinder used to collect the blood of his victims and give it to a tantric or a black magician for all kinds of nefarious rituals and based on this so called confession a tantric was actually picked up by the police to verify these claims but i don't know what became of it i don't know if he was officially arrested or if he became an official witness controle himself says that he was framed so this confession took a very weird turn very quickly but still the police also claimed that ravinder confessed to have killed at least 45 other people and dumped their bodies in the arabian sea this is in addition to the crimes he was already being investigated for and they also used his conversion to islam as a motive for the crime see at first the police had claimed that the killer had been gay himself they came to this conclusion because because all the victims had been male and they they said that all the victims had been sexually assaulted then the police go and catch ravinder but and ravinder says that he's in fact not gay he used to go to brothels he has a wife now so he is not homosexual so now the police find themselves in a bit of a quandary and they have to make their theory fit so they come after ravinder's new religion they say that since ravinder converted to islam and homosexuality is a sin in islam he started his beard man killings in some sort of missionary zeal to rid the streets of homosexual vagrants yeah and this is a very convenient twist in the narrative as far as i'm concerned first you decide that your suspect is gay then you catch someone and realize that he is in fact not gay and so you shift the narrative to homophobic rage kudos kudos all in all ravinder was charged in three murders in two of them he was acquitted by the sessions court itself for lack of evidence he was convicted and given a life term for a third one 
but this conviction also was overturned by Bombay High Court in 2009. So just so you know, all the while Ravinder was in custody, two more murders happened in the same area. And so during this time, just to justify Ravinder's arrest, the police claimed that these must have been committed by Ravinder's accomplice. This so-called accomplice was never caught, by the way, and it seems like another attempt to keep blaming Ravinder for these crimes. Overall, the case against him was pretty shoddy. Even after he was acquitted, Ravinder was harassed by the police in relation to other murders as well, murders he had nothing to do with. When the cacophony around the case died down years later and people looked back on the actual hardcore facts, it's difficult to even classify these as serial murders. In 2007, the police were swearing that the method of killing was uniform, that beer cans were found near at least three or four bodies. They said that the killer stopped leaving beer cans only when this detail became public knowledge and he was scared of being found out. But in reality, beer cans were only found near two bodies. So it doesn't really seem like a pattern. It just seems like either the victims or the person who killed them was fond of drinking. Or maybe the killer offered beer to the victim so that they would be easier to overpower once they were drunk. And we don't really know whether these cans were tested for DNA and if they were, whether this DNA matched Ravindra or not. So if only two beer cans were found, and this seems less like a pattern and more like a sloppy murder, I don't even understand why the media would dub this as beer man murders. I mean, And then the method of killing also does not seem to be the same as the police had previously claimed. And the claim that all the victims are homosexual is also not backed up by any evidence. So in hindsight, it doesn't even look like the murders were related. So I don't even know why they were called serial killings in the first place. At this point, I'm sure you must be as frustrated as I was while I was researching this. And you might be wondering, Aditi, why would you waste our time on this wild goose chase? And that's a fair question, you guys. That's a fair question. And the answer is that in true crime, sometimes hype and bad policing create cases that do not exist. This is sort of like the satanic panic which gripped North America in the 80s. Children were quote-unquote confessing left, right and centre that certain adults were abusing them during satanic rituals. Many people were arrested and their lives were ruined permanently. And eventually, a lot of these allegations, most of these allegations in fact, turned out to be completely false. And it seems like this is what happened in this case as well. It's definitely true that a series of deaths happened in South Mumbai in rapid succession within a few months between 2006 and 7. But whether they were all actually connected or whether they were committed in a spate of homophobic rage or whether the killer was a beer aficionado, these questions have never really been answered. What we do know is that poor Ravinder was hounded for these crimes even as he was trying to turn his life around. Not just these crimes, he was forced to submit to a DNA test in connection with other murders as well. His face was made public by the media even before his guilt could be established in a court of law. His life became very difficult. He had to shave off his beard, trim his hair, he had to lose his skull cap. He had to basically stop looking like a Muslim so that people would stop recognizing him on the road and harassing him. As for the poor victims, their killers remain at large and their murders remain unsolved. So this was the story of the dubious Beerman murders, if you can even call them Beerman murders. 
So I know this turned out to be a bit of a dud, but I hope that this episode was informative in of itself. Once again, if you like our work, please, please, please leave us a rating and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll be harping on this a lot, so you might as well just do it. It will really support what we do. And on other platforms, please subscribe to us. Reach out to us on our socials. They will all be linked in our show notes. We love to hear from you a lot. Keep an eye out for our episode next week. Till then, take care and goodbye.